Disclaimer. Any supposed facts or observations contained therein are attributed to the speaker and do not necessarily imply the endorsement of the podcasters or their affiliates. Does that sound right? I didn't sound like I said it right. Oh well, let's run with it. Cut. You know, I, I really do think that 60 minutes of this movie is actually pretty interesting and works pretty well, you know? Yeah, it just kind of it kind of goes off a cliff Yeah. in Act 3. Hello out there in Radioland and welcome to One Track Mind, the only commentary podcast that matters because, as far as I know, it's the only one. My name is Ryan Luis Rodriguez, a born-again cinephile and your host for this series where every week we're going to analyze film through the prism of audio commentaries, features without which the entire medium of podcasting would not exist. Directors, writers, actors, and craftspeople analyzing their own films in front of a microphone set the stage for the current culture, and it's about damn time someone showed the proper appreciation. If that sounds too stuffy, I promise there will be jokes. Not good jokes, but jokes. This week, we're skipping ahead a bit. What do I mean by that? Well, we're discussing a sequel to a film without discussing the original. Kind of. We'll discuss it superficially as part of the context part of this podcast. What am I talking about? One of the first movies I adored because of what it represented as opposed to what it accomplished, 1991's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Based on its intensely informative commentary from writers Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson on Shout Factory's 2018 Blu-ray set. Our story begins in either the late 70s or the early 80s. Aren't you glad you're listening to this supposedly informative podcast and get something as non-committal as that? <sighs> anyway, Solomon and Matheson meet in college and immediately strike up a commonality and a rapport. Performing improv sketch comedy and writing together, they stumble upon a couple of characters who would alter their destinies, Bill and Ted. These two lovably dim-witted characters operated on a very binary outlook. Everything was either excellent or bogus, hence the title of both films. They tended to see the best in literally everyone they encountered, and seemed to not have an inch of malice in their entire bodies, like the opposites of Beavis and Butthead without the nihilism, and they lent themselves to something buoyant and joyous. In 1984, they decide to write the characters into a screenplay, which would eventually be known as Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. In that film, these high schoolers, played by Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, are on the verge of failing their history class when a benevolent force known as Rufus, played by the sadly not literally immortal George Carlin, gives the boys a phone booth time machine to pluck historical figures from the timeline and bring them to the present day as an educational experience. The film, which absolutely holds up by the way, sorry we're not really covering it this week, goes into production in 1987 from Dino De Laurentiis' DEG Entertainment Group. By the time filming was completed and a rough cut had been screened, DEG goes into bankruptcy. The previous release window of 1988 passes by as the film sits on the shelf until Orion Pictures, itself no stranger to bankruptcy, and Nelson Entertainment step in to acquire the film for a million bucks, and the film arrives in theaters in February 1989. 
On a budget of 10 million, it grosses more than 40. And if you've been paying attention to our movie math on the show, you must gross twice your budget to be considered profitable. Four times your budget? Pretty goddamn profitable. Now, beyond being profitable, though, the film hits the zeitgeist. Comic book adaptations from both DC and Marvel, video games on both Nintendo and Atari, and television shows, both animated and live action. And when something has that kind of cultural impact, at least as far as movies are concerned, you have to move into sequel territory as fast as you can. In some cases, like these, too fast. The film went into production the following year, 1990, and writing was quite the frustrating experience. Solomon and Matheson, who is Richard Matheson's son, by the way, were struggling in their once thriving friendship. They had gone from friends who wrote a movie together to professionals who learned the realities of the industry at large. Their inaugural screenplay was made out of a sense of joy and exploration, and the sequel would not be the same experience. Nelson asked the two for a screenplay immediately for very little money, and when they resisted, immediately insisted that they could be replaced. Fearing the loss of a job opportunity, any job opportunity, they run with a concept that Nelson was pushing, that of instead of Bill and Ted going into history, they're on the verge of failing their English class and must go into popular works of literature. Fearing that this was too derivative of the original, they instead propose a script tentatively titled Bill and Ted Go to Hell, pushing things in a darker direction tonally and aesthetically. If Excellent Adventure was about optimism and buoyancy, what would become Bogus Journey was about death and pain. Only the characters haven't changed, it's the world around them that has. And calling the movie Bill and Ted Go to Hell was not misleading in the slightest. In the script, Bill and Ted are literally murdered by robot doppelgangers and must venture back to the land of the living from the depths of the underworld. The original didn't even have an antagonist, and now we go into a film that has three of them. The robots and their creator, Denomalos, whose name is Ed Solomon Backwards, and unfortunately for Denomalos, who hates the titular duo, his creations are still basically Bill and Ted, just in robot form. That way, when the robots kill the duo, they're still represented in the land of the living, essentially making this a Bill and Ted movie in more ways than one. Nelson went about compressing the production timeline even further by, once the script was ready to go, and Solomon and Matheson's have maintained that it wasn't yet, having principal photography begin in January 1991 to be released the following June. That gave them five months to shoot, edit, and test the movie, which is a quick turnaround by any stretch of the imagination. Couple that with the fact that Solomon and Matheson still hadn't cracked the final act, it makes it even more oppressive a compression. There was no time to edit and finesse, leading to an arguably rushed product. To make things worse, since the two were now professionals, they weren't on set for the shooting, as opposed to the original, where they were able to pitch in in case something needed further embellishment. That's not to say that there weren't any victories in the process. In the original script for Excellent Adventure, the time machine that transports Bill and Ted was a van, only for director Stephen Herrick to propose that they instead travel in a phone booth, just like Doctor Who, a television series that neither Solomon or Matheson had ever seen. In Bogus Journey, the van was restored. 
Naturally, it doesn't actually time travel, because no one aside from Rufus and Anomalous actually traversed the chronal spectrum, but you have to take your victories wherever you can. As for the failures, again, they still felt that they were proud of the picture's middle third, but still hadn't cracked that insanely tricky third act. But um, it's, it, it, the whole thing feels a little rushed. And, and when we get to Act 3, uh, obviously we will talk about yeah. that because Act 3 has a, this kind of weird thrown together, everything but the kitchen sink. In fact, throw in the kitchen sink, too. You yeah. know, it's just everything. When the Martian yeah. you know, when the Martian splits in half and there's two giant Martians and there's robot Bill and Ted, it's just, wow, it kind of just tips over. It's just too, it's too much. On the positive side, writing the characters still managed to be a little therapeutic, and having made an entire movie with Keanu and Alex before, they knew how to write towards their strengths as actors and personalities, and if you had to find a positive angle for the finished product, it's a remarkable sense of consistency for the characters between films. And it must be said that Keanu is definitely a movie star by this point, so there was some concern that he wouldn't want to return for a second bite at the apple, only to be delighted to know that his affection for the character and the universe remains strong. Solomon and Matheson were initially concerned that Reeves and Winter would feel that the spark was gone in some way, but that certainly wasn't the case. Where Bogus Journey would live or die was another department, the switch in tone, which Solomon and Matheson address in the commentary, a point that I must respond to in affirmation. On the other hand... This one is darker and weirder, and some people like darker and weirder, yeah. right? Like dark and weird, those aren't inherently bad. Like it, it like yes. right. We, everything we were going through, all of those dark threads that were present regarding our friendship, regarding maybe our own inner lives, regarding dealing with being professional, right? All of it, everything, right. we incorporated them. Right there, we didn't. You know, they're part of the story. And so the movie is very dark and strange. And, and what is... And that's what's good about yes. it, too. And the other thing that... That's what's interesting about it. Yes. They die. Right. They get thrown off a cliff, and the evil versions of them spit on their dead bodies. <laughs> I saw Bogus Journey in theaters on first run, probably one of my parents' both greatest and worst decisions, at the age of five. And even then, was incredibly affectionate toward the tone. My favorite sequels tend to get darker and weirder, from The Empire Strikes Back to Back to the Future Part 2, both of which will be coming up later on in this episode, and Bogus Journey is certainly no exception. Back in 1991, my five-year-old brain probably couldn't decipher how the third act fails. I was not terribly versed in story structure at that point, but I know it made an impact. It wasn't until I finally revisited the film from the Shout Factory box set that I began to piece together where the film stops working in a larger sense. But even then, I still retain a real soft spot for the whole affair. How can you hate a movie where your lead characters are murdered, go to hell, and seem to have more fun in that surroundings than they did in The Land of the Living, at least initially? They literally meet death, played by the incomparable William Sadler, playing the Grim Reaper from Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal, and in the process delivering one of the great comedic performances of all of cinema, and challenge him to childhood board games in a last-ditch gambit to retain their corporality. How was that not charming? Challenging the literal embodiment of death to a game of Battleship? 
Isn't that the cutest thing you've ever heard? Upon winning their freedom, death takes them to heaven, and that's where things take a turn consistency-wise. In Heaven, which looks like the Hall of Justice from the Super Friends cartoon, upon being released by God, they encounter a pair of diminutive aliens collectively called Station. Why, you ask, since that doesn't seem to make sense? Well, it's a long story, and thankfully Solomon and Matheson took the time to explain it. So here's how Station came about. So as I was describing, we're sitting in my new house, this little tiny house. We have a computer. And we had written a scene that took place in the police station. And it was very late at night, and we were quite tired. I, I think it was like 2 or 3 a.m. It was yeah. by the time we got to that. This is. Yeah, so we were pretty wiped out because we were writing it fast. We were writing it fast. We wrote it that, had, that took place in the police station. And I think it was a whole other iteration. Oh, yeah, we had a. Our, remember, our original third act had to do all with robots. Robot Bill and Ted's all oh, over the God, place. Oh, God, there was that, yes. too. Right, right. Is it, how's it doing? How's it doing? Is it, how's it doing? Which we, we loved it. We actually really made us laugh that third act. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we got, I don't know, noted out of it somehow by the powers that be. Anyway, we deleted that entire bit, but just through computer error, the word station from, from interior... Popped up in the middle of a description sentence? Yeah, it was just floating. It would just ended up in there. And you and I were so punchy that we just started going, Station. 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 Station helps. Helps singular. I have no idea at this point. Bill and Ted build good robot versions of themselves to battle the evil robot versions of themselves. And that's where Matheson and Solomon think they began to lose their way. To hear them tell the tale, Bill and Ted should have built the robots themselves which I don't necessarily think is one of the more glaring flaws of the film, but then again, I didn't write it, and I can't begin to imagine how something perceptively minor would bother the actual scribes. The two halves of Station also run into each other to combine into one Station, which was director Pete Hewitt's proposal as a metaphor for Bill and Ted, as they're two halves of the same brain. Literally, they each have half a brain. Where the movie takes a turn, at least for me, comes from something I learned from the commentary. When in hell, Bill and Ted enter their own personal hells where they're menaced by things that are, on their own, not actually scary. Bill is terrified of his own grandmother, Ted of the Easter Bunny, and both of these threats are, in the final cut, basically non-sequiturs. We don't know them until we meet them, and they're gone just as quickly but these characters were meant to recur in the third act, only to be cut at the last minute. All their footage was shot and can be glimpsed in the periphery, though. At one point, if you pay close attention to the roof of the van, you can see claw marks that were the result of an attack from the Easter Bunny, unless Grandma has really tough nails. That's entirely possible, given that she comes from Bill's own personal hell. Originally in the initial draft, Bill and Ted would bring figures from biblical history into the land of the living, but they ultimately decided against it, perhaps believing it would be too derivative of the original film. As the third act currently exists, they believed that any momentum they had built up was gone, that the picture becomes a random sequence of events instead of a legitimate conclusion. They were instructed by the great creative minds at Nelson, he said archly, to increase the stakes in the final minutes onto a global scale, 
which really goes at odds with the first two-thirds of the movie, which is very focused on stopping the evil robots, whose evil deeds are mostly limited to menacing their girlfriends, which I just want to say is a bad thing. You should leave ladies alone. No means no. The outside-in contribution made the entire conclusion feel less organic, even more than the inclusion of Station, who promptly disappears once the good robot Bill and Ted's are completed. To be fair, they did feel that passages work because they were writing them for themselves, that they believed the work suffered when they were writing for someone else, where the writing wasn't generated by joy, it was generated to meet a quota which is not an insubstantial chunk of the film. You know what, we were, the reason that doesn't work as well is we were doing a house number, you know? Yeah. We were sort of yeah. doing, then Bill and Ted quote a heavy metal song like yeah. they do. Right, was, we could have done better. It's like, out that's of place. the moment that I look at and yeah. I'm like, wow, why did we settle for that? That's not good. It's very... I remember laughing when we, on the death's reprise of... Every Rose Has Like, Every thorn. Rose Has Yeah, that's has the only thorn, thing that's... didn't even... strike marginally funny but it, yeah. yeah no but you're it, right it's very house numberish and, and you and i have tried to avoid house numbers in this okay. thing bogus journey costs twice as much as excellent adventure and gross two million less making it just under the profitability mark but esteem for the franchise never really waned solomon and matheson with support from reeves and winter remained intent on producing a third installment of the series bill and ted face the music one that would make it into a proper trilogy which languished in development hell with rewrite after rewrite as no studio seemed intent on actually making the film. It wasn't until May of 2018 that it gained any traction and went into production, bolstered by Reeves's resurgence in popularity following the success of John Wick and its arguably superior sequels. I say arguably just to bolster my own opinion, but oh well. A proper theatrical release was thwarted due to a little thing called the then-raging COVID-19 pandemic, but The Hollywood Reporter concluded that its video-on-demand release was the fifth most popular of 2020, which is nothing to sneeze at, theatrical release or no. Bogus Journey still endures, still not of the level of excellent adventure, mostly due to the popularity of the titular characters. It's hard not to be at least a little enchanted by the two of them trying to play 20 questions when they're of one mind. And if you can't appreciate the alteration of tone, then we're completely different people and just won't understand one another. The spirit of Bill and Ted looms large. Two characters that treat everyone with exuberance and joy, whether it's their girlfriends or the embodiment of death, even God. And that's something we should learn to emulate in modern society. It's time that we stop being so bogus and be excellent to each other. That feels kind of disingenuous to say, but gosh darn it, I mean it. Party on, dudes. But before we wrap up, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. The concept of the Dark sequel, much like Bill and Ted, looms large over this episode, so I'm not going to surprise literally anyone with my selection of recommendations this week. Two of them have already been mentioned in the body of this episode, so the selections really won't surprise anyone. We'll cover them in chronological order, starting in 1980 with Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. 
Now, I know in the past I've refused to call Star Wars anything but Star Wars, but that's because until 1980, it was not known as A New Hope. Empire is no such case. It has been, since its initial release, the fifth chapter in a then-six-chapter series. As it exists, it sets the stage for the dark sequels to come. There had been dark sequels before. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes immediately comes to mind, even though that's a prequel, not a sequel, as I addressed in an earlier episode, one that ironically involves Star Wars, but this is when people begin to pick up on the doom-and-gloom take on a sequel. Instead of trying to replicate the planet-obliterating pyrotechnics and spectacle of the original film, Empire turns its focus inward, and becomes more character-based. It's no surprise that Han Solo, especially in this film, was so crucial to my own emotional existence as a child, and since this is just as much his movie as Luke Skywalker's, it's no surprise that I love this even more than Star Wars. Hell, it's my favorite film of all time. I can't make the argument that it's the film I've seen the most, that would probably be the first Toy Story through a large combination of factors, but it means the world to me. Or rather, worlds. The next recommendation is nowhere near as good as Empire, but it does hail from the once fertile imagination of George Lucas, 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which, right around the release of this episode, will actually be discussed on the One Track Mind Patreon. Now, Ryan, you're thinking to yourself, Temple of Doom is a prequel, not a sequel. You would be right, just in terms of chronology. But it is very much the difficult second album, a reaction to both the success of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the fact that Lucas and director Steven Spielberg's marriages were in the process of collapse. This results in a follow-up that feels genuinely haunted, like both men are clearly working through some real shit, and it's much less fun and sprightly than the original, but it also boasts some of the greatest action sequences of Lucas and Spielberg's careers, mostly scenes that were excised from the original script of Raiders, and I can really appreciate it on that level. It's not perfect, not even close to be honest, and it's more than a little racist, but at times, it's completely exhilarating. My final recommendation is one that I've been defending since its release, or at least I would have been if I wasn't three at the time, and will continue to beat the drum for until I'm dead, apparently, and that's 1989's Back to the Future Part 2. Does it even approach the first installment? Not at all. Back to the Future is one of the most immaculately structured screenplays in modern cinema, possibly of all time, and Part 2 has an identity crisis. It's essentially three movies in one. The first part goes into the future of 2015 that is now our past, a place that director and co-screenwriter Robert Zemeckis never wanted to go. The second part is the pitch-black alternate reality of 1985 that is easily my favorite section of the film, simply because it raises questions and throws out ideas that most films would spend an entire runtime trying to explore, then completely sets them aside in such a frustrating way that I kinda have to love it. The third part goes into the events of the original film, which is the least interesting, but still represents something that sequels have had to contend with since they were a thing, rehashing the past, except made literal. The film was made in the immediate aftermath of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a past episode subject in case you haven't been listening to this show before, and Zemeckis was becoming consumed with bleeding-edge cinematic technology, particularly the motion-control camera. 
It allowed the director to composite multiple versions of the same actor, namely Michael J. Fox, into the same scene. The same shot, even. And it's still nearly impossible to see the seams, which is a testament to his ability behind the camera. As a purely technical exercise, it's a paramount experience, and I adore it. All three recommendations this week are available on 4K Blu-ray, and they all look and sound incredible. The Empire Strikes Back is from Buena Vista Home Entertainment, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as part of the Indiana Jones 4 movie collection from Paramount Home Entertainment, and Back to the Future Part 2 on Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. Whole lot of home entertainments there. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash one-track-mind. That'll do it for this week. Is there anything I overlooked? Reach out to me at one track mind Pod on Twitter, one that is the numeral one track mind podcast on Instagram, on Podchaser, or send an email to OneTrackMindPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or the source of your choice. Positive feedback helps keep the show alive, and I want to keep making it until it just isn't fun anymore. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for the podcast artwork, Bill Sherm for original themes, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Case A, Catherine H, Ellen I, Kathleen D, Izzy T, Bobby L, Michael A, Ian C, Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Mary M, Bill M, Christopher H, and Tracy R. Thanks for listening, and until next time, you're going to cut that, right? Dawn, that's the end.